On Pop Fiction Women, we explore what it means to be a complicated woman. Tired of endless variations of leading men next to one-dimensional archetypes of women or strong female leads written by men that were essentially guys in women's bodies. We started this show to highlight the many female characters in entertainment worth exploring, as well as the women who dreamt them up. And now we're adding those creators to our conversations, discussing their process and passion in bringing these women to life. Welcome to Complicated Conversations. On these episodes, there's no spoilers. So come on, it's starting. Joanna Rakoff is the author of the international best-selling memoir, My Salinger Year, and the novel, A Fortunate Age, winner of the Goldberg Prize for Fiction, the L Reader's Prize, and the San Francisco Chronicle bestseller. Rakoff's books have been translated into 28 languages and nominated for major prizes in the Netherlands and France. She has written frequently for the New York Times, Vogue, Marie Claire, O, The Oprah Magazine, and many other publications. And now you're seeing behind the, you're seeing how the sausage is made. <laughs> As a listener who's now watching us, you can see behind the curtain a little bit. It's exciting. <laughs> Welcome to Pop Fiction Women, Joanna. Thank you so much for having me. I love the show and I'm so excited to meet you guys and to be a guest. <laughs> oh, we're so excited to talk to you. Do you want to tell us a little about My Salinger Year? Absolutely. So My Salinger Year is the story of the year, as the title would suggest, that year being 1996, in which I worked as an assistant to J.D. Salinger's agent, who was the president of New York's oldest and most storied literary agency. In the book, I just call it the agency. In real life, it was called Harold Ober Associates. It had a fittingly old world sort of name. And it was a very eventful year for Salinger because he decided to kind of come out of his hermitude, for lack right. of a better term, <laughs> and publish a new book. That book never came to be, which is a whole other story. But basically, I, as the assistant to this agent, got to know him in a way that I might not have if I had had this job in a different year. And it's also the story just of my being young and having a terrible boyfriend and living in a wonderful, terrible apartment in Williamsburg and watching my best friend drift away from me and decide to kind of live a more conventional suburban life. And in general, it's a coming of age story. I love coming of age stories. And this one wraps something that could have never been in my life, the agency experience and conversing with Salinger. And then also so relatable, being the bad boyfriends, feeling lost and lonely and all of that stuff in your 20s. So I really loved the book. Oh, I'm I mean, so glad. And so I have to ask, I mean, how does it feel to not only have your life published in multiple countries, but now adapted for the big screen? I mean, you're seeing Margaret Qualley playing you in scenes with Sigourney Weaver, two heavy hitter, complicated women. I mean, it just, it has to be so exhilarating. It is. And <laughs> I feel like I should step back and explain that, you know, there are so many different ways to have a book adapted for film. And so there's kind of a spectrum, right? So one end of the spectrum would be you sell the rights to the book, a director, a screenwriter, a production team come together you have nothing to do with it. Maybe they talk to you a little bit. Maybe they don't. And maybe they turn it into something that's very foreign, very divorced Different from your from, book. Yeah. 
there's the sort of other end of the spectrum, which is like you adapt it yourself. And that's kind of like the Lindy West shrill sort of situation. And mine was more along those lines. So I worked really, really closely with the director. Initially, I was actually going to write the screenplay and then he decided he wanted to. And he sort of hired me as a consultant to work with him on it and then eventually hired me to do a big overhaul of it because he, as a 50-something French-Canadian man who didn't know New York very well and didn't know publishing and didn't know what it was like to be a young woman, was just having trouble right. like with the dialogue <laughs> and impossible. understanding that like I wouldn't be watching hockey in my underwear and stuff like that. <laughs> So I was very involved in it and I was on set. I was rewriting scenes up until we went into production. So the weird thing is that I'm such a kind of worker bee kind of person that in a strange way, that part, the rewriting scenes and puzzling out how to turn this somewhat internal book into a film, that part in a certain way was almost, I don't want to say it was more exhilarating than having the film come out, but it was as exhilarating. I loved the work of it. It came together over many years. I mean, not that many years, maybe four years. But it was still just really fun having all the pieces come together. Like the moment when Sigourney was cast was a pretty exciting moment. Wow. Yeah. Realizing, yes, she is perfect for this. But how about the casting for you? That must be so strange. I mean, when an author adapts their novel, say a fiction, I mean, they feel like they're babies, these characters. But this is memoir. I mean, this is you. Was that strange? Yes. It was strange. And I mean, it was fun and exciting and also the process of it and also kind of terrifying. I was asked to put together a list of 10 or so actresses that I thought would be right. And it's kind of odd, but it was actually different. So everyone plays this game at some point. Like right now, I feel like my dream person to play me would be like Amy Brenneman. But anyway, for me at my age now, I even I remember posting on Facebook and saying to friends like, who would be good to play me? and getting a really wide range of answers, none of which were exactly right because we needed someone. It was really important to Philippe, the director, and to me that the actress be basically the age that I was because I was so young. I was 23 and 24. And often in movies and TV shows, as my 12-year-old daughter likes to point out, they get 30-year-olds. Yeah, <laughs> or even 35-year-olds. Yeah. Or like you, it's a movie about high school and everyone is like 30. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, and... Yeah. And we really felt that this book and film were so much about being very, very, very young that it had to be an actress who was about the right age. But because of the way funding works for film, it also had to be someone who was famous. A name. Yeah, it had to be, you know, an A-list, a name actress who was going to draw people in. And I don't know if this is known to the world or not. I didn't know this before I started working on the film. But the funders basically provide you with a list, a big list of who they will accept. So even before you start thinking of people, they're like, these are the people that we will accept. And so I provided this list and I would say like a pretty large percentage of them, they were just like, no, we can't even consider this person. And it was hard to figure out someone who was the right age and also kind of a big enough name. So we were struggling. We were having trouble. Like the casting director was talking about Elle Fanning, who I think is a wonderful actress. 
And I was trying to imagine her playing this role. And actually now, after you know, she played Mary Shelley, which was so wonderful in that film. If you guys haven't seen it, you I think you would love it. Very complicated character. But it, at the time, this is four years ago, she seemed not exactly right. And then I started watching The Leftovers and saw Margaret in it and thought, what about her? And my husband turned to me and said, my husband has known me since we were 18. And he said, she looks kind of like you. She reminds me of you. You should consider her. And I had been thinking that, but I thought, am I crazy for thinking this? And I mentioned it to Philippe and he mentioned it to the casting director, who's this famous casting director named Billy Hopkins. And he was like, yeah, all over it. Yeah. Yes. And she was cast immediately. And so she was the first person we cast. And it was just her for a long time. So it was exciting. So for years, I got to think of Margaret as me. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes. That's amazing. That's she exciting. did a wonderful job. Yes, she did. I loved watching her performance and Sigourney Weaver in the movie. But I really, really loved this book so much. And I want to read a little bit because certainly one aspect spoke to us on this podcast she is so the protagonist of the memoir, who is you, but not you, right? It's like a version of you that doesn't exist anymore. She's definitely complicated. She's in that postgraduate haze of being lost, but also feeling like anything is possible, which is such a sweet spot in life, but it doesn't feel like it when you're there. And I found you both very compelling and endearing, which is also not easy to pull off at the same time. And I thought it was great. And then there's a moment where Don, we don't like Don, but he had a couple good things to say when he's describing that you're rosy and full of light. You object and you have a moment where you say, it would not be an exaggeration to say that I'd always considered myself dark and heavy, a chubby child burdened by sorrows, my own, those of my family, my plagued storied race. But that instant, something shifted. Was it possible that Don was right, that the world perceived me in a manner entirely different from how I perceived myself? Was it possible too? That one could be complicated, intellectual, awake to the world, that one could be an artist and also be rosy and filled with light. Was it possible that one could be all those things and also happy? I love that. Clearly, as you know, because you listen to the podcast, that is a big part of our message that we don't have to be just one thing. And not only can we be more than one thing, but we can be things that appear to be contradictory. And I'm not sure this is a question, but I just please tell me that's not only true when you're 24 years old and coming of age, because we're hoping this is going to be okay for the rest of our lives because that's how we feel. Yes, it's interesting. Okay, so I would say a week or so ago, I did this big event and the host of the event allowed people to introduce themselves. And one of the people at the event was this young woman in Lebanon who had read the book when she was in college. And she just graduated a year or so ago. She was an English major. And I don't know how she found out. I, maybe she found out about it from Instagram. But anyway, that was the passage that she mentioned as well. And I, it struck me that there was something really universal about this. But the next day, she actually posted one of those meme placard things that people post with part of that quote on it. And I actually started crying. And then it started being circulated all over. And I don't know why it affected me so much, but I think it's because because now that I've had time to think it through, I think that question is always there for women in a way that it is not for men. So I'm 48 now, and I still struggle with this question constantly. I really do. It just kind of morphs into something else. 
maybe it morphs into, depending on what your station in life is and what your choices are, like it morphs into how am I a mother who by necessity, by definition, has to give so much of myself at all times. During the pandemic, it feels like 24 hours a day. My kids range in age from five to 16. And so there's rarely a minute, even in the middle of the night when I'm not tending to someone. How do you reconcile this kind of definition and state of being with that of being, let's just say an artist, not just a writer, because by definition, being an artist means basically being selfish. I mean, you don't have to be a monster like Picasso or Hemingway or whoever, or like Roman Polanski or whatever, but you do have to keep a lot of yourself apart from other people. You have to be private. You have to keep your thoughts to yourself and you have to fight or kind of claw out time to yourself to think your own thoughts. So in a way, being an artist is almost at odds with being a mother. And yet at the same time, being a mother makes you a better artist. There's no way that that is not true. Obviously, you don't have to be a mother to be a great artist. That would be absurd. But for me, I feel like it's made me a better writer. So point is that I feel like I'm wrestling with all of these things all the time. You know, how can I be full of light for my children and in my work and be happy, but also access the dark places that one needs to in order to be a great novelist. And I don't want to be a mediocre novelist or a mediocre memoirist. I want to be a great novelist and memoirist, you know? It's something we, I think we all struggle with, especially, like you said, as women. We were just talking about WandaVision and the creator of WandaVision, Jack Schaefer, and we were reading how she kept trying to fit herself into one box. She was talking specifically about genre. She had been rom-com and then was going sci-fi and people didn't understand her overlap. And she was like, you know what? I just got to throw away those preconceived notions of I have to be this one or the other. It's really not easy. I think we put it forth as the goal, but it's never easy. It's really hard to try to reconcile those things. You'd want one to win out and it just doesn't happen. Yeah, it's so true. It's so true. And I think it is harder to be happy for lack of a better term when one has two or more pieces of oneself that are by nature at odds with each other. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I was journaling this morning, writing that I'm like living the life that I've always dreamed of. And yet I'm so unhappy all the time. What is wrong (laughs) with me? But it's true. It's that I just feel they're sometimes incompatible. And instead of just being where I am, like when I'm writing, just be happy writing. And when I'm baking with my kids, just be happy baking with your kids. Like if you're more present, I think you can do it a little. You feel less of that angst, but it's not easy. It's true. I remember when my oldest child was a baby. I was struggling to finish my first novel and I had no money. I was in a pretty unhappy marriage, but I was in denial about it. And I really wanted to raise my oldest. I mean, all my kids, but with my oldest, it was sort of most profound, this desire to raise him in this very particular way, which is that I wanted to be there for him emotionally at all times in a way that my parents weren't really for me. My parents had me late in life. They're kind of greatest generation people. I'd say they're kind of like the parents on Freaks and Geeks in a way, or like kind of similar. People often compare my mother to the mother on the Gilmore Girls. And that's a pretty accurate comparison. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I'm writing a piece about this right now. She's very Emily Gilmore, very sort of cool, detached. She doesn't think of herself that way, but she totally is. So point is that I didn't want to be an absent mother, but I also felt, I guess you would call it like a vocation, a calling to write this novel. And I had a job. I was a magazine editor for a magazine that luckily amazed 
amazingly let me mostly work from home. And wow. so I basically, I know it was crazy. For your 16-year-old, that's revolutionary. <laughs> yes, I had worked in office before he was born. And I will also say my boss, who's incredible, who was a former New Yorker editor, is a man and he just got it. He got it. Yeah. And I was felt really pulled in all directions. And one day I was at the park with a friend of mine who's a pretty well-known sculptor, actually. And she had a child the same age as Coleman. And I was sort of, I think I must have looked a little bit like my mind was in another place. And she said to me, essentially, are you still thinking about your novel? And because I was trying to sort of fit everything into like when he was napping or when he was asleep. And I was like the the characters in my novel felt like real people to me. And she said, yeah, that's just how it is being a mother and an artist. Whenever you're with your child, you're going to be thinking about your work. And whenever you're with your work, you're going to be thinking about your child. I was like, oh my God. And you would think it would get easier, but it doesn't. That was sound advice or commentary. Yeah. Yeah. But that's the struggle. I want to go back to the book a little bit more because I want to read some more. So as the story goes on, you slowly find your voice. You begin responding to the Salinger letters, which I love. And I love that you sign your own name. You were never pretending to be someone that you weren't. But by the end, you're starting to actually see who that is, like what that really means. And I want to read a couple of places. Dear boy from Winston-Salem, I too can get quiet emotional. You're right. You can't go around revealing your emotions to the world. I've been trying to take your advice and I think I'm succeeding. I left the man I love in California and he's pretending he's not angry with me and I'm pretending I'm not lost without him. I don't have enough money to pay my bills, but I'm pretending I can go out to dinner and I can do all the things that people in New York seem to do. So we're all doing a pretty good job not revealing our emotions, right? But if you can't reveal your emotions, how do you go on? What do you do with them? Because you see, I keep crying at odd moments. Please advise (laughs) yours, Joanna Rakoff. I want to read another one, which I loved as well. This is the correspondence with the prep school girl. And you write, even if I were able to pass on your letter, which as stated above, I cannot, it's unlikely he would indulge your question with an answer. If there's an ambiguity in Mr. Salinger's stories, it's purposeful. As I'm sure you know, he has often been asked whether or not Franny is pregnant. I knew this to be true from the letters that came in and from Hugh, though I had no idea what it meant. But again, he leaves it to the reader to decide whether or not this is so. In literature, as in life, sometimes there are no right answers. Part of me wanted to keep going, to tell this girl that she needed to be firm in her convictions, to resolve debates herself without seeking outside authority, that the fact that she'd written to Salinger, who she surely knew would not be likely to write her back, showed pluck and gumption, and she should run with those qualities, that the world outside Choate or Exeter or Deerfield Academy was even more complicated, and she would need to know her own mind to get by. So, uh, first of all, I have to ask, were you really this wise as a 24-year-old? <laughs> <laughs> and do you still stand by this advice and what you were talking about there? Because I know I believe in it. Yeah, I do. I stand by that advice. I did really write a letter that is almost verbatim what I have in the book to this girl. Oh, I love that. In the film, we fictionalized a component of this interaction in which the girl who I'm writing to, the prep school girl, comes to the office and confronts me. In real life, what happened is the girl wrote me back furious and was like, who do you think you are? And hilariously, you know, she thought that I was this ancient lady who was kind of wagging my finger at her. (laughs) Yes. And I was really just a few years older than her. 
much. But yeah, I will say one sort of odd thing is that I love that you think of me as having been wise at that age, because part of the problem that I had in writing this book, which I didn't want to write, I had to be coerced into writing it. I felt strange writing a memoir about my life as a 24 year old, you know, it just seemed weird to me. But I think I was embarrassed by what I had done. And it took me a while to realize that. And once I was aware of it, I was able to sort of sit down and write the book. But I had this sort of year after I signed the book contract where I was trying to write the book in this kind of wry, cynical tone where I was pointing out how silly and absurd and full of myself I was as a 24-year-old that I thought I could give advice to people and I thought that I could embody Salinger's voice. And I think or I know that what allowed me to write the book was understanding that I had to be really gentle with that 24 year old self and just be okay with everything I had done. And so it's so lovely to me that it comes across to you as wisdom, not as just idiocy. Yeah. (laughs) Well, there's two things about that. One is we all think we know things at 24, right? It's just the nature of being 24. You have to feel like you have some grasp on the world because if you don't, you're just even more more lost than you already feel out in the world. But the other thing is, it's just so full of empathy. And that I think is the wisdom. It goes in the correspondence. It's not that you had some pithy line, which you did. But what really stood out to me is the idea that you kind of got what they were saying and also kept the conversation going. So I love that. One of the parts that Corinne just read mentions your love of a man in California. And you mention uh, your college boyfriend a lot in the memoir, the man you had left behind in California. You said, because I loved him, truly loved him, had loved him from the moment I met him at 18. And then you go on to talk about a line from Salinger about being slightly unhappy constantly. Then you say, could I allow myself to be slightly unhappy constantly? I thought about the way my college boyfriend looked at me. I had never, not ever disappeared before his eyes and the way his skin felt in the morning, warm and loamy and the long nights we'd spent talking ever since we'd met the vibration of his low voice in my ear. For a moment, I allowed myself to miss him, to truly miss him. And the pain that shot through me was almost physical. I ached for him. I loved him. I wanted him. But right now, I needed to be slightly unhappy constantly. I love that part. And we learn at the end of your memoir, you end up reconnecting with your college boyfriend 16 years later. And if you listen to the podcast, which I know you do, we have a lot of debates on here about the one that got away. And so (laughs) I wanted to know if he was your one that got away and how did you find your way back to each other? Yes, he absolutely was. And I, too, am obsessed with the one that got away story. It's a recurring theme in everything I write and everything I read, I think. So it's, of course, a very long story, but I will condense it. I thought, as you can kind of sense in the book, I had done something unforgivable in leaving him. And I think he kept saying to me that he forgave me, but I felt like I didn't deserve him somehow because I had left him. So I ended up marrying someone who I barely knew who was totally wrong for me in every way that he, my college boyfriend, now my husband, whose name is Kirill, in every way that Kirill was was right for me. And I stayed married to this person, I think almost to punish myself, to be honest. I kept trying to sort of tell myself that marriage can be just kind of like a business, like Charles and Diana. That worked out super well. 
my ex-husband was a writer and we were kind of in the same world. And I just had all these almost like Edith Wharton-esque ideas about divorce and marriage, that like marriage doesn't have to be a partnership between two people who passionately love each other. It can be just a kind of partnership between two people who have common goals. And I told myself that and I stayed in touch with Kiro, my college boyfriend, on and off over the years. And, you know, we would kind of not be in touch. And then we would have an hour long frenzied conversation or a five hour long frenzied conversation. And this went on for years. And he married someone as well. And both his wife and my husband were horribly threatened by each of us and banned us from being in touch with each other. And, you know, we're checking our phones and emails, even though there was nothing going on between us. And eventually, a lot of stuff happened, but eventually we ran into each other in Boston where he lived. I lived in New York. I was in town for a conference and we literally ran into each other by accident. And I said to him, how are you? And he said, I am not good. I just can't be happy without you. I can survive without you, but I can't be happy. And I just knew when he said that the same was true for me. And we got back together. So you felt, you know, maybe you didn't deserve him, you said, because of what you'd done. So how'd you get past that? You finally just... Right. Yeah, that's what I wanted to know. That's a good question. I think maybe I just grew up a little bit. Yeah. And it became clear to me as I got older that people had committed far worse <laughs> sins than the <laughs> sin that I committed and been forgiven for them. Exactly. And yeah, and that... We didn't need to spend the whole, you know, we weren't characters in an Edith Wharton novel. We didn't have to spend our whole lives being alone and unhappy because of a mistake that I made when I was 23. But there was one other aspect to it, which is that I say in the book that I needed to be slightly unhappy for a while. And I had a conversation with Kirill in which he essentially said to me that he thought that if I hadn't dumped him... <laughs> When we were 23, if we had stayed together, we might have ended up apart anyway. Oh, wow. Because, yeah, because yeah, yeah. he realized that there is something about our relationship in which we get really lost in each other. And part of the reason that I left him was because I wanted to be a writer. I was sort of on an academic path as he was. He was in a doctoral program for composition. And I think he thought that we would have this kind of lovely academic life, like the professors we'd known at Ober. And I would enroll in grad school at Berkeley and get my doctorate in English and we would get jobs together somewhere. That sounded really nice to me. But what I really wanted was to write poetry, write a novel, write for magazines. That's what I wanted. And I couldn't seem to do it when I was with him, maybe because I loved him so much that his needs and his everything kind of eclipsed me. And I think as he got older, he understood that. And as he saw me build this career for myself as a writer, because I was able to start it pretty quickly once I left relatively quickly. And he was proud of me and excited for me. And I remember he was living in Paris at one point when I wrote my first big, big, big like front page feature for the Times. And it was promoted and was one of the most popular stories. And I'm trying to remember if he called me or what. It was a time when we weren't supposed to be speaking to to each other, but he either called me from Paris or emailed me and was like, oh my God, and was so excited to see this. And I think he was aware of the fact that I needed to kind of be alone, basically. And I had married this other person, but it was a marriage that very conveniently allowed me to be alone. It was a marriage in which my husband and I didn't really have emotional intimacy. 
So I just spent a lot of time alone with my thoughts and I didn't really talk to him about what was on my mind or my day or that kind of thing. And I kept everything to myself. And then I kind of had friends to talk about more kind of superficial stuff with. I think that was a lot of it was like Kirill's coming to realize that I did need to be alone to kind of come into my own as a writer. And my coming to realize that I didn't need to punish myself for the rest of my life, that there were still many decades in which I could be happy. Mm-hmm. with him I love that I love, I love that, that too because you know one of my struggles with the concept of the one that got away is I really believe in timing timing has to be important but now the way you're explaining it Joanna's is making a better case than me isn't she totally. I, I'm, I'm, I listen <laughs> oh I'm happy any any perspectives that can bring her in over to this the just, one that got the away idea side with that us. You, if you had stayed together when you were 23 or 24 you would have not made it but that you made it now and like now now this is like the real love of your life. And I don't know, that speaks to me. I get it. And I also, I don't want to say I'm an extrovert because I don't know if that's true, but I'm hugely interested in people, which is why I was a reporter. As a reporter, I loved writing profiles and I loved interviewing people. And I loved being a dilettante, being like, I'm going to write this piece about Norwegian folk dancing and interview all these Norwegian folk dancers. And that's my life for a week. And I think that's why I write fiction too. And Kirill is not. Kirill is kind of like an egg. He's like, a self-contained person who, even in our life now, he's just happy being with me and the kids in our house, taking a walk, sitting on the couch, listening to records. Whereas I kind of want to be like charging out, doing stuff all the time. And I think that I did need to have those bad boyfriends and like go to New York and like, I mean, New York was sort of like returning home for me, but like go to parties and like meet all sorts of people and just do all sorts of stuff. Be a PA on a Barbra Streisand film, like do all these random things that I could. Yeah, yeah. I just needed to if I had just stayed with him and kind of lived a quiet academic life starting from age. We met when we were 18. We'd be sort of got together romantically when we were about 20, 21 if I had never done anything else, I think I probably would have gone crazy and had a you midlife crisis and yeah. left him. And I think a lot of people, that is the truth for that. There are these partnerships in which one person has a certain set of needs and the other one has a very different set of needs. And that doesn't mean that they're not compatible. It just means that maybe like in terms of timing, they need to do different things for a while and then come back together. Yes. But the other little thing I just want to tell you is that when my Salinger year came out, and this is kind of ironic because of the nature of the book, but I was flooded with mail and I was honestly overwhelmed by it. And I still feel guilty that I didn't respond to all of it. But so much of it was focused on just that one aspect of the book. So much of it was like, I live in Halifax and I recently got back together with my childhood sweetheart and we are 85 years old, you know, that kind of thing. I love this story. Yes. So it is so many people. And then also people, I I feel like I've become the world's receptacle for stories about lost love. So people, People are constantly saying to me, you know, oh, I had a Kirill or I had a college boyfriend and I still think about him and, you know, I should have married him. And I never know what to say because I feel like I don't want to be the person to break up dozens <laughs> of marriages like <laughs> because it's not the right thing for everyone. Like for me, it was the right thing. And I knew for my whole life that it was the right thing. Like to give you an idea of how dramatic this was for me, I for years had a recurring dream about Kirill that I had almost every night and I would wake up thinking it was real. And the dream was that I went to his house and he lived in some sort of like charming Victorian house. I would go to his house 
he was there. There were two versions of it. He would let me in and say, oh, I'm making dinner, but I, there are a few things I need. I'll be right back. And then I would walk into his bedroom, put on, I know this is going to sound weirdly specific, a dark green silk nightgown that was sitting on the bed for me. And then I would fall asleep. That was the dream. Oh my goodness. Oh my and God. Have you had someone analyze this? That seems pretty on the nose, like missing each other, right? The timing. And then you falling asleep for so long, not being part of your life and knowing what you needed was actually actually to be back together with him feels very dead on. Yeah. Yes. Oh my God. Oh my God. I'm so glad I asked about this. This is just the best. I'm sorry. I could talk about this all day, but we should. Maybe you should have like an offshoot podcast that's called, I don't know, Lost Love. Oh my gosh. Oh my gosh. Or the one that got away. I know. Look at me. I'm like, I know. (laughs) I can see the wheels turning. I'm in. And you know me, I'm in. Yeah. Oh, geez. I like in the it. way that Sarah Marshall it. and Michael Hobbs have their little offshoot podcasts from You're yes. Wrong About. They're the yes. hosts of this wonderful podcast. And then they each have little offshoots that follow each of their things that each of them is a little bit more obsessed with. Oh, my God. I love oh this. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Hey, we have producer that. Ian, yeah. that's my husband. husband, but I think we need producer Joanna. I mean, I know. she's got the ideas. Well, that actually leads me beautifully to our next question, which is I am a lot like what you've described, the, all these weird experiences and and not wanting to fit in one box. And you have written fiction, memoir. You've been a reporter, which is more nonfiction, straight nonfiction, not memoir. You were so involved in the movie adaptation. I mean, do you love that? Because I would imagine that sounds amazing. Whereas someone else would be like, no, I'm a novelist. I want to just crank out novels. And I think Celeste Ng had said that about that she was not at all involved in the adaptation of Little Fires Everywhere. And she was like, I'm a novelist. Like, that's nice. They do that stuff. But I would be like, get me in that room. Let's break story. Let's figure this out. So my question is, and probably there's no answer. It's just kind of you fall into these things. But like, how do you jump from one thing to the next and know it's the right thing or you just kind of go with it? People have asked me this question a lot. Even starting out when I was, I'm having this memory of something that I haven't thought about in ages, which is that when I was sort of a young magazine and newspaper writer, I, for whatever reason, was asked to speak a lot at journalist conferences and writers conferences. And I remember people constantly asking me this and I was like 28 years old because I guess I had already done a bunch of things within kind of writing and media. And I have this memory of just saying to someone at this conference at Penn that I just this is a bit of a cliche now, but it wasn't then that I just had a policy of saying yes. And that if somebody offered me an opportunity, if whatever magazine was like, we want you to write a column, even if it didn't seem like quite enough money, I would sort of say, can I get a little more money? Okay, yes. Or like, if I can't have more money, can I have freedom to write about whatever I want to write about? And I just kind of followed things where they took me. And I also do have this kind of funny thing, which maybe you guys do too. But I have this kind of odd thing in which I I need to sit by myself and think I need so much time alone. But I also need lots of time with people and I love to work collaboratively. So I think that I have kind of tracked back and forth between jobs and projects where I'm working collaboratively. Like I worked in-house at magazines and when I was quite young, I worked at some literary nonprofits in the poetry world and I loved all of that. And in some ways, having that kind of structured, sanctioned time to be with other people actually made it easier for me to sit down and focus and write. In some ways, I miss that and wish that I 
I had some kind of job or something where I was talking to grownups for some part of the day. And I think I could kind of burn off some of the energy that fuels me to do a lot of hot yoga and go running and whatever. Yeah. <laughs> like I could burn right. off right. some yes. of that energy yeah. and be able to sit down and focus. But I guess the other thing that also relates to this kind of introvert extrovert thing is that I also, first of all, have had to say no a lot. Like at a certain point, I felt like my novel, which was consuming so much of my mind, I wasn't progressing with it in the way that I needed to. And I knew that it was because I wasn't spending enough time alone because I had this enormous circle of friends and there were always parties to go to and always dinners and birthday yes. dinners. <laughs> so I did a lot of very serious thought about what I enjoyed doing and what parts of my life fueled the novel and what did not. And I made these really big choices. Like I thought I hate those huge birthday dinners, but I like getting together with a small group of friends or with one friend. And I'm going to make this choice that I'm not going to any big dinners. And so I started saying no to a lot of things is my point, both work things that I didn't think were going to be fruitful for me or fuel the novel. And so there's this huge balance between saying yes and kind of following this winding path and then saying no to things that were kind of going to hold me back, if that makes sense. Yeah, but to say no, you have to really know yourself. And you have to know this will benefit me in X way. And even if it's not direct benefit, you know what works for you. And then you have to have that knowledge and that clarity to say yes to the right things and no to the wrong things. Exactly. Celeste happens to be a good friend of mine and she lives across the street. Oh, oh that's <laughs> but, um, so funny. But that is so true. Celeste is a person who really does know herself. She knows how she works. She knows what she needs. She's a very, very focused, organized person. And I I'm not at her level of self-knowledge by any means, but I remember her saying, no, I don't want to do this. And Zadie Smith, same thing. When White Teeth was sold, she said, I don't want it. This isn't my thing. I don't want to have anything to do with it. Do what you will with it. And then she was really excited and happy with how it turned out. But for me, the truth is that I started off wanting to work in film and TV. This was always a kind of desire of mine. And I almost applied to film school. When I applied to get my MFA, I initially filled out the paper work, which at the time had to be done physically and ticked off the film box for Columbia. And then I changed my mind at the last minute and switched it to writing. And I think I'd always had an inkling that I might be good at writing for film. I had done a lot of theater and I really liked directing, but I wasn't sure. I just wasn't sure. I think I didn't have the confidence to go for it. And I was excited when it was clear that they wanted me to be involved in this because I thought it was a good way to kind of dip my toe in and see yeah. if I really liked it or not. Exactly. Something you already had an interest in. So it sort of gave you an in. That's Yeah, it wasn't that I wanted control of the material. It wasn't that at all. It doesn't um, sound it like it. More... This is not just this seems to be you just, you know, yeah. from reporting and you wrote a novel and memoir. And these are all very different parts of your brain. So it, to me, not knowing any of this, it made sense that you were very involved. Sounds like she's like, I want to get into this. Yeah, it's true. Exactly. And I, what it what it instilled in me was this feeling that I want to do more of this, but I want to be Philippe. I want to be the director. I don't know that I want to be like a showrunner or something, but I want to sort of fully adapt it myself. I'd love to have a partner, but I'd like to be the one driving the car a little bit more. I think having been the one in the passenger seat watching him, I now feel like I know how to drive. Right. (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. That's what I was going to ask. So now that you've dipped your toe in, it sounds like you would like to jump in this pool. 
I would like to. Yeah, I have a book, a new book that is due. It's actually overdue. If the pandemic hadn't happened, it would have been in a year ago or not a year ago, but almost a year ago. And I also have a novel that it would be great to finish, but I would like to sort of start getting things in motion for developing my first book into a TV series. My film agent seems to think it would work. It's set in the 90s and it's about a group of friends in New York and it kind of goes through September 11th and there's a lot of interest in the 90s right now and it's a lot about the kind of economic changes of that time and so it could be fun there's a tv show in the works right now that's an adaptation of one of my favorite books and I've been having this dream that maybe I can convince them to hire me as a writer which is not driving the car but I'd be okay being a passenger in this car yes can you tell us what it is it's Taffy Burdesser Ackner's Fleischman yes 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 is in trouble yes oh my god so they're turning that into a tv show and Taffy is of in charge and I'm trying to work up the nerve to be like hire me as a writer because that's very much my world the world of that book is so my world so do it yes I will be in any car driven by Taffy right you surround yourself by the right people I try to yes this interview has gone in different directions and I kind of wanted to stay with the momentum but we also wanted to talk a little bit about poetry because recently Kate has rediscovered her love of poetry and I have recently found a way in and so that's been really exciting and obviously a big part of both of the movie version and the book you start out in poetry is that still something that really speaks to you is it something that you write is it something that you read every day what is poetry in your life today it waxes and wanes I don't write poetry anymore I think that I will come back to it when I have more space in my brain even maybe just when this book is in or when my kids are a little bit older, there's a way in which poetry somehow feels like a luxury to me. Whereas when I was younger, poetry I felt I thought was a necessity that poetry expressed our most urgent ideas and emotions. And like there was no other form that could do what poetry did. But poetry requires some patience and space in your brain to kind of unfurl meaning. And I don't always have that now, especially during the pandemic. However, I do try to, and I I do succeed, I have in my bedroom a large bookcase, and all of our poetry is on that particular bookcase. And I pretty regularly will just, apropos of nothing, walk over, pull out a volume I love, and just read one poem. Yeah, it just calls to you. Even just randomly, almost like the way, I don't know, like Christians of previous generations would open the Bible and just read whatever they turned in that Sometimes it will be something that I just will be thinking about. There's a poet I really love named Sarah Vapp, who is based in Seattle. Her poetry is just very ferocious. And another poet I love named Kate Marvin. And sometimes a line from one of them will sort of come into my head and I'll just pull their work off of the shelf and read. Not even necessarily the line I was thinking of, but just their poetry, just wanting to hear their voice. I do pretty regularly look up poems online and read them just favorite poems when I'm sort of at a stopping point with my own work. And poetry kind of provides me with a little respite and also with escape from the frantic nature of life right now, because there's nothing productive about poetry. You know, poetry just purely <laughs> exists. supposed to be, right. Exactly. Yes. And so I feel like actually, I said, I think poetry is a luxury, but at the same time, there's a way in which maybe we all should be reading more poetry right. now. I mean, a funny thing, which I'm sure you guys have talked about, is that it does actually seem that people are reading more poetry right now. Yeah, we talked about that with Kate Bear, how it just is resonating with people. And I had read an article, an academic article that was 
was saying that it had to do with the bifurcation of our attention. We either want something super short or we want to immerse ourselves in something. So it makes sense during the pandemic. And then also just I think we're headed that direction anyway. Your writing is like poetry to me because it is so deceptively simple and you realize how much editing that takes and how much thought that takes to be so simple and clear and concise. That's the hardest thing to do. You can tell that you have a strong poetry background. I think that I'm attracted to a lot of writers who could be described in the way you just think you described my work, like a writer like Rachel Cusk, for Mm. instance. I think that her work has that deceptively simple quality to it that you could read her most recent works, the Outline Trilogy, and just think, oh, this is so simple. She's just walking around having conversations. But I, I know from hearing her speak that she spends months and months actually thinking through the movement of her books and then kind of sits down and it's all kind of worked out in her head. And she has this very strong idea of how she wants the books to operate in terms of language and structure before she sits down and writes them. And they're very complex. That's what I wanted to ask you about this book, too. I mean, it's all real. It all happened. But every instance doesn't necessarily happen right against the other one. Something that happened at work is reflected this day you get your new apartment. It didn't necessarily happen that same way. How do you know how to structure real life into a compelling narrative like you did? That is such a good question. It was a a bit of a learning curve for me. I came at this from the perspective of a fiction writer. And I really was struggling with that exact question. And what I ultimately did as I struggled was I made coffee dates with a few friends of mine who are really strictly memoirists and said, you know, what do you do? How do you do this? And they all said, you know, you have to condense things and fictionalize a little. There's no way because it's just not possible. And then I thought about this for a while, as is my process. And I eventually kind of came to this realization that what I needed to do was to write this book as if it were a novel. And it was, I mean, almost like a cartoon light bulb flicked on over my head. And I had been struggling for a good year trying to figure out how to approach the book. Like, what was my tone? What was my style? What was my point of view? Like, was I writing it from me now? Or did I want to immerse myself? in me then like what was the book and ultimately I got out an index card I'm a big user of index cards and wrote on this index card this is a novel you are a character and I then took out a legal pad and I wrote down the names of all the in quotes characters and I gave them all pseudonyms So I had previously been trying to write it with everyone's real names. So I changed the names of everything. I made the decision to call the agency just the agency and call my boss my boss. I loved that. I couldn't believe how that worked so well through the whole thing. I was like, this is so smart. (laughs) That's again, the deceptively simple. It was a very deliberate choice. And so that kind of freed me up. And I remember the the thing that you may be referring to is this incident that happened with my apartment where the heating was not working and it was very cold. It was actually one of the coldest winters on record in New York. There had been this horrible blizzard and the city was shut down. And we, my then boyfriend and I approached the landlord, you know, about fixing the heat. There was literally no heat in this apartment and she really didn't do anything. And then one day we came home and they had installed this illegal heater that had like an open flame and was dripping oil onto our floor. And so in real life, 
this happened much earlier in the events of the book. It happened sort of like that first winter I was in the apartment. So in initial drafts of the book, that's where I had it. And what I ultimately did was went through the book and separated out different plot strands. Like I thought, what is that? What really is this book? Like what, what is going on here? There's the stuff with my office, just office stuff, agency stuff. There's Salinger stuff, my boyfriend stuff, parent stuff. I didn't call it stuff at the time, but anyway, I called them plot lines. <laughs> yeah, and then yeah. I actually physically took scenes from the book and kind of laid them all out on the floor and tried to kind of weave everything together. It was all woven together. I tried to weave it together in a way that made more sense. And I realized that there was a way in which that incident with the heater was a kind of wake up call for me, but I ignored it. And in turning my life into a piece of art, I had to use that real incident for what it really was, which was a wake up call to kind of leave him and leave this place and change my life. So there were things like that, where as the book progressed, I realized, let me shift. That's the big thing that I really changed. And I had this kind of sick feeling for one second when I did it. And then I had this really exciting, satisfied feeling. And I was like, like, now the book works. Yes. Yes. Uh, yeah, I love your answer. It just really speaks to me right now. I think sometimes that question for me was a little bit of like, so tell me how you do it. The truth is like a lot of things, you just have to do it. And it's a lot of trial and error. It didn't magically appear to you, you know, like this is the exact arc of my life in this year. You write it down. I love the trick you played that you were going to write a novel about it and you just work with it. And it's a lot of trial and error. And sometimes I try to skip that heartache. It's so true. I'll just tell you one tiny thing, which is that I'm part of a writing group that is all people who are, with one exception, are on deadline for books. All of us are kind of behind because of the pandemic. There's one other person who's trying to finish a book. She's not under contract for it, but she's a really established novelist and she's trying to finish this novel. And this particular person, who's an amazing writer, was expressing frustration with certain aspects of the book. And another person in the group who's incredibly wise said to her, I think that what you're feeling is that you want to be, you know, nine drafts ahead. Like you want to, you want (laughs) to have the knowledge (laughs) of the you that's written nine drafts of this book has, but you don't have that knowledge. Now you have to just get through to the end of this draft and then you have to revise it nine times and then you'll have that knowledge. So you have to just be okay, not knowing some of this stuff. And it's true. It's really true. And you think I can imagine, I don't know who you're talking about or, or her circumstances or anything, but I can imagine that if you are perceived in the world and maybe by yourself as an accomplished writer that you shouldn't have to do that, but you do every time. (laughs) This is just the way of the work, right? Yeah, it's so true. I mean, writing one book doesn't mean that you know how to write the next one, right? You're always starting over. They need different things. Yeah. As we wrap up, we come to our standard questions. And though you did not come out and say it outright, the astrology sleuths that we are, I figured out that your birthday is in May and you are a Taurus. Is that right? That is correct. (laughs) I loved that. I was like, this book was for me. Just (laughs) dropping hints because it was like early May and then it was last week in May. And I was like, okay, she's got to be a Taurus here. Do you relate to astrology at all or being a Taurus? So I love astrology, but I don't know that much about it. I always kind of sneakily try to learn more. And when I'm having a really bad day, I will often waste time reading various horoscopes 
And I've been told by so many people that I'm a really classic Taurus. Okay. But I'm only partially aware of what that means. And the whole time we were talking, I was thinking, you're very much not a Taurus. I'll speak specifically a lot of the idea of like trying new things and being willing to jump around is the wrong word, but willing to dip your toe in so many different pools. Tauruses are very grounded, very steady. They don't change. So that just was what spoke to me as not very Taurus-like. But one thing that we've learned about astrology, this is a very side, small project for us that we love to think about. And we're more just sort of amassing information as we talk to people and we start to research a little bit more. The most important thing is to know your whole sign because your sun sign is the day you were born, but your moon sign, which can control like how you're feeling inside all the time. And then there's your rising sign, which is how you present to the world. And so I sense that you probably are classic Taurus, as maybe some people that know you say, but that your rising sign and your moon sign are probably pretty big influences on you as well. I have to find that out. Years ago, when I worked at a different agency than the one in the book, we represented the foremost astrologer in Mexico, whose name is Andrea Valeria. And we did this book for her, her first English language book, which was called Astrological Intelligence. And this is a long time ago. I did so much work on the book that she, as a gift to me, did my chart. Oh, wow. Yes. And so this was so long ago. This is right after my Salinger year. And I went to her beautiful apartment in the West Village. It was very eerie, actually, because she was so dead on about everything, including things that I thought didn't fall under astrology. Like she actually said to me, one of the first things she said to me like you was. have bad ankles or something. <laughs> exactly. Like, that's what she said was, I sense that you're closer with your father than your mother, but that you and your father are very different. And it's the kind of closeness between two people who are very different. And then she actually said, so you have, there's a lot of affection between you, but you're not actually really close. And I sort of, I was this moment where like the scales kind of fell from my eyes. And I was like, that is all completely true. But I had never known this before. Well, that has to do with houses. And also, if you think about it, this is, listen, please, real astrologers don't come at me right now. (laughs) (laughs) But I've been looking at charts from my parents and my children. And there is something that dovetails with genetics. It's obviously not an exact science because genes are something completely different from stars in the sky. I understand this, but there is my son who is a very similar personality to me has different planets in the same houses that I have. And I'm like, this is just something I've passed on to him. Nature, nurture, astrology to me are almost inseparable. So yes, people can and tell you stuff like that, like your relationship with your father and all of that. Yeah, I have it's, to read more. It's wild. Yeah, it's interesting how astrology is so huge right now because I I was a little kid in the seventies and it was huge then, and I have a much, much, much older sister. And this is actually what my new book is about. It's about my sister and the two kids between us who passed away. But my older sister, she's 18 years older than me. So she was in college when I was born. And she was like a full on child of the 60s and 70s, bell bottoms, halter tops, hair down to her butt, feather earrings. And she was hugely into astrology. So there was always this tension and there were always astrology books lying around. 
And my parents were like, this is a load of bunk. But I was always kind of fascinated by it. And my sister would read me little pieces of them. And she was obsessed with astrology, not in like a weird way, but just in a normal human way for a long time. And then it kind of went away. So I kind of missed the astrology boat. But now I see my kids it's coming back around. Yes. yes. Well, my kids are so interested in it. And my daughter, who's 12, like 12 going on 17, is right, one of the people are. who will be like, oh, my God, Mama, you're such a Taurus. Yes. Oh, my God. I, I love that. Yeah. No, it is. It's becoming much more prevalent and popular. It's wild the way those things cycle in and out. Well, if you find out your moon sign and your rising sign, please contact me. Let me know. Okay. I will find them out. I will. It should be easy to to do. I'm very interested in that. My sun sign is Aries, but my moon sign is Capricorn. And so Aries are like, try everything, do everything, have experiences out in the world. And Capricorns are very interior, rigid and structured. And so I'm constantly having this battle of myself, which is like, go do everything. Don't care if you look flaky, just do it. And then the Capricorn inside of me is saying like, this is not how we operate. We need to structure. We need definitive answers. And it also explains why, though, I'm fully committed to being a lawyer, being a writer and being a podcaster is the Capricorn in me is you have to fully commit. And then the Aries in me is like, do everything. Right. Oh, yes. Yeah. But it's constant conflict, constant conflict for me. So we always end with asking you what you're loving right now. And I'm particularly interested in hearing what you are reading, watching on TV or movies. But first, wait, I have to ask you about the book again. You were just mentioned the sister one. So it's nonfiction and it will be due soon. So publishing takes forever. So like a year. I think they're going to try to get it out as soon as humanly possible. So I'd say like a year. I've told them that I can turn it in by the end of June please cross your fingers that I can actually do this. It's a little bit contingent on people returning to school as they're supposed to and stuff like that, but hopefully I can do it. So yeah, it's called The Fifth Passenger. And the basic premise of it is that I grew up thinking that I had this one sister and sensing that there was something sort of different and off about my family, but I didn't have an inkling of what that was. Like knowing my family was different than other families in our neighborhood. And my parents were much older than all the other parents. And eventually I discovered that there were two children in between me and my sister. And I didn't know this. I mean, it seemed as though I was about 10 or so when I discovered this. No one explained to me what happened to them, but I eventually discovered that they had died And it took years to sort of have bits and pieces of the truth come out. Basically, there had been a kind of code of silence in my family, in part to protect my mom. And I was meant to grow up thinking that I just had this one sister. Yeah. And so the book is partially about my childhood growing up and in this kind of house of mourning and silence with all of these secrets partially about my sister's life and how keeping this secret kind of eroded her from the inside out in many ways. And then a lot of it is the story of what actually happened. And how you discovered it. And how I, Yes. So part of it came out along the way. Part of it came out when my Salinger year was very much in the world. And I was in the world a lot. And people would come up to me at events and say, I was your oh. brother's best friend. I was oh, your wow. sister's best friend. I live next door to your family, that kind of thing. And then part of it is me going out and reporting what happened. All of your training coming together for this. The yes. The memoir coming out, the reporting. Oh, my gosh. Wow. That's, Let's hope. Um, yeah. 
I can't wait to read it. I can't wait. So what else? What are you what are you loving that you're reading, watching? I know you're busy, but no, I'm always reading and watching things. Let's see. Okay, so the most recent books that I read that I loved are a book that actually just came out today. It's by a writer named Gina Frangello, and it's called Blow Your House Down, a story of family, feminism, and treason. And it's a memoir, but it's like a big, ambitious, it's almost like a messy book that falls into this category of like, I'd rather read a book that is not perfect, but is ambitious and far-reaching and exciting than read a book that is like perfect, but doesn't do very much. So the sort of main storyline is about her while in the midst of a lot of life difficulties, like caring for three children, also caring for her aging parents in a marriage where there really is like emotional abuse. But, you know, she's kind of a little bit trapped there for financial reasons. She's supported by her husband, embarks on a kind of somewhat dark affair that overtakes her life and that is a secret for many, 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 many years. But it also goes into her childhood in this very kind of poor and violent milieu in Chicago. And oh my gosh, this just, sounds like it's something so I good. love. Yeah. It's so good. I could not put it down. And then I also just recently read a memoir that's gotten a huge amount of attention, but that is completely justified that I loved called Being Lolita by Allison Wood. Yes. Yeah, we had her on. That was fantastic. She is great. And those are the last two things that I read and loved. What am I watching and loving? Like everyone in the world, I'm watching Call My Agent. Oh, I haven't heard of it. Call My Agent is a French TV series and it okay. falls into the category of things that are truly delightful. And it is about a talent agency in Paris. And each episode, there are sort of a cast of talent agents who all have all sorts of personal problems and are huge personalities. But then in each episode, there's a real life French film star who is like a client, ostensibly a client of this fake agency. So it's like Juliette Binoche and like that kind of thing. I loved it or I love it. I'm I'm not fully through it. There are, I think, four seasons. I can't but I, did... I haven't heard of this yet. Yeah. Oh, my God. I can't either. You have to watch it. I love it. I swear it is like a hotbed of complicated women. Oh, I love so... it. Perfect. Perfect. I'm glad I pushed that one on you. Yes. Oh, to find out and... more. <laughs> yes. My husband used to work at an agency, so I love those stories. I just love the inside drama. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you guys were talking about like how the sausage is made, and I feel like agencies are where it's really made. Yes. So especially in film and TV, like there's so much stuff about like putting these people together and like these how this film is made and then the financing collapse and it's weirdly riveting. Yes. Well, I don't want our time to end, but I really should let you go. <laughs> Well, thank you so, so much. It was such a pleasure to talk with you and Kate. Thank you so much for doing this and taking this time. You've taken a lot of your time and I really appreciate it. I know that's not easy to come by. It was a pleasure. It was so exciting. Tell our listeners where they can find you. The social media platform that I use the most is Instagram. And I'm just Joanna Rakoff on Instagram. I'm also on Facebook and I attempt, attempt to say things and ask questions and do the things you're supposed to do. But I, I don't do it that frequently. And I'm occasionally on Twitter, mostly retweeting things I think are funny instead of doing the work related stuff I'm supposed to do. Um, <laughs> and, and I, of course, have a website, which is just my name. So come find me. You can watch my Salinger year, the movie version on IFC, or you can read Joanna's amazing memoir, 
available in paperback now. We want to let you know we've launched a Patreon page where supporters can receive perks like bonus episodes and exclusive content. Because Pop Fiction Women is our passion project, a place where we give women space to show up and offer in-depth analysis in the ways we're used to hearing about male creators and their characters. We delve into creativity and psychology with a dash of astrology, and we have so much fun doing it. Just two friends breaking down books, movies, and shows like Normal People, Fleabag, and I May Destroy You. Every single aspect of this podcast we do ourselves, from the preparation to the recording, from the editing to the social media promotion. So we're adding a Patreon platform because we want to keep making the show you love and hopefully expand it even further. So please consider becoming one of our most complicated fans and contributing on Patreon. To learn more, go to patreon.com forward slash pop fiction women. This has been Pop Fiction Women with Corinne and Kate. If you enjoyed this show, please tell the complicated women in your life. And the men who love them. Yes, tell them to listen. And then to follow on Spotify or review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts. And of course, share on social media. Tag us with your favorite books, TV shows, and movies starring complicated women on Facebook and Instagram at popfictionwomen or on Twitter at pop underscore women. For more coverage of the women you love or to find out if you qualify as a complicated woman, go to popfictionwomen.com. And keep it complicated.